Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Colony Drop, a Gundam podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Isaac. This is your favorite Gundam podcast where we talk about everything from Gundam models like Gunpla to anime series, the upcoming Gundam movie, anything and everything that is Gundam, including and especially incredible manga series. Brian, what are we going to talk about today? Today we are finishing off the last two volumes of Crossbone Gundam for our review. So Isaac, I understand that you are in the middle of a celebratory feast. Yes, I am. Listeners, you will be happy to know I'm enjoying black grapes, cream soda, and gummy bears. (laughs) Because I'm feeling bittersweet, Brian. This is a bittersweet ending because this series has just gotten better and better after each volume. And I went into it almost dismissive in a way i was going through the first few pages i remember i had issues with the animation style and it being kind of too chibi but oh my god brian i'm sad to see it go because (laughs) i had such a good time yeah the listeners you know i think isaac and i have mentioned a few times for various series about sticking the landing being very important in an ending for us and this is definitely a series that really delivered isaac i would say it really stuck the landing wouldn't you I would go further and say this is the best manga series in Gundam that I've ever read so far. And it's done a far better story than many Gundam series that I've seen. That's the highlight of this review. Crossbone Gundam totally delivers. We're going to go through it. I got lots of good questions for Isaac. Oh boy. (laughs) So again, Crossbone Gundam has six volumes. We've already reviewed volumes one through four. Um, I would actually say that uh, volumes five and six were probably the best two volumes. Would you agree with that, Isaac? I'll double down on that, Brian. This series got better with each volume. The stakes got raised. Characters had, they progressed through their arcs. Surprises showed up. And this series really went out with an epic bang. All in all, I regret not reading it sooner. And I regret having such a low opinion of it just going in initially based on the um, the first few pages of their art style. Because, oh my god, this was so much fun. It was so enjoyable. The pirates, they really won you over there, it sounds like. Uh, Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm still kind of loyal to the bad guys. But I'm talking about the story in general. It was pretty great. But yeah, I mean, they might be pirates, but man, they can go toe-to-toe with some uh, pretty powerful villains. So listeners, when we left off at the end of Volume 4, the Death Gale Squadron, the ace pilots of the Jupiter Empire, they were about to engage with our hero, Kincaid Now while Tobia had just stolen the X-3 from uh, Sherry, Sherry Rona. Tobia took off in the X-3, screaming towards the battlefield, trying to go help uh, Mr. Kincaid, as he calls him. And that's kind of right where we pick up here, Isaac. I, I like that about this manga, that it generally picks up kind of right where you leave off every time, which is pretty refreshing. Sometimes people sprinkle in some time skips or whatever, a little, a little cheating. <laughs> that's a good point. Now that I think about that, like it, when I've seen that in manga series... I, I never really investigated it, but sometimes I wonder if, like, did the creator, the animator take a hiatus and then they return and they actually want to pick up the story a little bit further on based on what they were thinking about or what they've been brainstorming, you know, things like that. Because, you know, these artists aren't working around the clock. Maybe they take breaks or switch to other projects. Same thing with the writers and the story creators. So you know, who knows why there's some gaps, but this was one full continuous story and it really, it, doesn't stop there's there's no brakes it's all gas and no brakes <laughs> <laughs> so buckle up bite your lip and get ready 
So as Tobia heads into the battlefield to go help Kincaid, Bernadette is also headed to the battlefield in that mobile armor called the Elagalea, which we first saw in, at the very end of Volume 4. And she's also got this squad of fairy bug-looking mobile suits from the Jupiter Empire escorting her with like a, like a bug helmet called the Dionas. Did you remember these, Isaac? Yeah, I remember them. I didn't think it was so much a bug helmet as a bird. Oh, okay. I wrote down it could be bug or bird. You're on, you're on Team yeah. Bird. I call them Tweety Birds. They have, <laughs> they're deploying the Tweety Bird Squadron, which it was, so, it was so bizarre looking. Let me try to describe it to the listeners. Imagine like an angelic woman, but she's wearing like a giant, like almost sports mascot stuffed animal bird head on top of her face. But her face is coming out from like the mouth kind of area. That's kind of what these things look like. It was very yeah. bizarre, but at the same time, this whole thing's kind of a propaganda mission in a way, as we uh, find out later, this whole little sending, you know, Bernadette into combat. So this was very much, you know, the princess squadron, right? They would want this going out with the princess just based on how they look. Mobile suits with kind of feminine type bodies. Yeah, they seemed ceremonial more than anything else, I would say. Yeah, and they fought ceremonial too, <laughs> didn't they, Brian? <laughs> yeah, they didn't do too well. So Tobia comes screaming into the battlefield. Literally, he's yelling, and the these Diona mobile suits, which apparently are the Jupiter Empire's new type squad. Whether that's real, true or not, I don't know. I mean, they kind of just got their ass kicked. But they also hear him scream in space, and so does Bernadette. And here's where we get the first real good look at the X three Isaac. It's got this huge looking saber thing which is actually called the miramasa blaster what did you think of that weapon i thought it was pretty neat it was very unique it's pretty badass it's very much all right they always do this in gundam right like one of the coolest weapons or the the final boss weapons always get rolled out towards the end of the series so the gundam's able to use it into the final like hours right. of the of the remaining timeline yep. you know oh, sorry the remaining runtime but this part in particular feels like it would be great animated. Like there was that one episode of Unicorn that either left off or started with Ensign Riddy coming in in the Banshee. I feel like this is the equivalent from Crossbone Gundam when Tobia launches in the X3. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is final act uh, weaponry and mobile suit showing up. And so Tobia, he, he kind of reaches to where Bernadette is. He blocks some shots. We find out that he, well, he actually finds out that he has an eye field as a shield. He has one eye field in each hand. So unlike the, the X1 and the X2, which have normal beam shields, he has full-on eye fields, Isaac. So Tobia's is getting, like, he's getting the upgrades here compared to the X1 and X2. He's got the Miramasa the Miramasa blaster and eye fields. I mean, this guy, he's lucking out here. Yeah, it was pretty cool seeing him actually being able to bend beams using the eye field we never really saw like a an actual like angle of beams being bent i think when we see eye fields usually they just kind of like deflect or fizzle out right so this was cool seeing them actually bending away and also unfortunately well i mean not unfortunately because at least he has one but the, the cooling time on the eye field itself both of them kind of means that he can't constantly be using it though Right. I, I might get the time is wrong here, but I think each one lasts for a minute, 45 seconds, and then it requires two minutes to recharge. So even if he uses two in a row, he's still going to be defenseless for 15 seconds, which actually will come back later on. But that's like the biggest differences between the X3 and the X1, X2. X3 has these eye fields uh, and the Muramasa blaster. Other than that, though, they very much look like a crossbone gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So Tobias, you know, on his way, he tells Kincaid, hey, I'm coming for you, you know, I'm coming to help. 
I'll be right there. And Kid Kane's like, nah, don't do it, man. Barra, she's already set the self-destruct on the Mother Vanguard. It wasn't going to make it. It's taken too much damage. So she's secretly going to blow it up, and it's going to be a cover for the entire crew to escape. So that's kind of big news, right? Isaac, I mean, I think last volume she did say, like, all right, everyone, let's just kind of escape. But I don't think we had... we Did we know yet in volume four that she was going to blow the thing up? No, I don't think so, but... They've they've taken so much damage already, right? They're surrounded. They're in combat. They're really one ship, which in previous Gundam series, the main mothership or whatever, whether it's the Rock Kailum or the Albion or what have you, whenever it's in the final battle, it's always part of a fleet. So it's not necessarily the main target of all the other enemies. <laughs> but <laughs> in this case, since there is no Crossbone Vanguard fleet, there's just their one ship. It's literally the target for every other capital ship they're fighting and every other mobile suit they're fighting. And, and their sort of luck this whole time of, you know, we are one ship, and but we're a great ship and we kick everyone's ass. That luck has kind of run out given the whole Federation is shooting at one person, basically, and it's them. It's a hard ship to miss, too, if you're a gunner. <laughs> that's true. You can't get it confused <laughs> for anything else. No, that's definitely the enemy ship. <laughs> But surprisingly here, Isaac, the Death Gale Squadron backs off, and they allow a new foe to approach, which is Zabine. He's back. His X-2 has been rebuilt a little bit. It's got bigger crossbone you know, boosters on the back. And he's got this enormous rifle, which we didn't really see him use too much, which is kind of a shame. But he kind of like skulks through the, the smoke here, and the panel of him sneaking through the smoke with the crossbone sticking out is just fantastic. It really reminds me of that scene in Double Eighty Three. When the GPO two is walking through this the burning wreckage of like Torrington Base as Gato's escaping. So I think this would be another great part if this, you know, manga was ever to be animated. I know you already liked the X two before. How did you think about the the new version of the X two? It was pretty cool and I liked that they clearly gave him a weapon that balances out what the X two was lacking. Because it was never big on like ranged combat. So what did they do? They gave him that big rifle. Yeah. <laughs> So now that Zabine's here, he reveals that the Death Gale squad promised him that he could have his one-on-one -on -one match with Kincaid. But he seems to want to duel Isaac because he drops his rifle, he drops all of his beam shields. He just kind of wants to go hand-to-hand. -hand. And Kincaid kind of just automatically agrees to it. Did you think that was odd? I mean, I'm trying to think, like, is this an aristocratic way of fighting? <laughs> Could be. I mean, it is a, it's essentially a duel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's very Zabine, or at least Neo-Zabine, right? Because yeah. we'll get to, like, our small list, I guess, of negative thoughts about the whole series overall. But this still feels like such a weird Zabine. Like, this might be Zabine's cousin because of how different he is. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't know. My head canon is that this was a very aristocratic way for Zabina to fight. Just mano a mano. We'll just we'll duel it out. Right. And before we get to see the duel, we flash over to Tobia and Elagalea again. So he's kind of just shredding through these Dionas. And it's kind of funny, Isaac. He can't figure out how to turn on his Muramasa blaster. So he's still using it kind of just like a club instead of turning on the, the beam spikes on the side of it. And he literally had the safety on, which we find out later, which is kind of funny. From inside the Elagalea, though, Bernadette tells him to fall back, but then the Elagalea fires on him. So, you know, if you think, okay, well, Bernadette's piloting it, how is that possible? It turns out that one of the Crux bio units is piloting it, Isaac. So we're, we're going to get to see our first mobile suit duel with one of the Crux bio units. Yeah, that was quite the twist, because I remember in the last volume, uh, in 4, they told her as they were putting her in the cockpit, there's actually nothing you need to do. It's all automated. Right. And I thought to myself, okay, this is software running this 
but the, the big reveal that the, you know those brain cylinders are running the the actual mobile armor was kind of a surprise. And what did you think about the Elegalea? I mean, I thought it was pretty cool looking. It's kind of like a big Zom, but like more modernish, and it's got like this big tail armed scorpion thing, but it also has real arms. It's got a mono eye. It feels like it's very well designed since it didn't really have like a front or a back in a way Mm -hmm. right like first it kind of moved sort of like a a snake and then like it was able to pop out part of its fore and and rear and then those became kind of arms very much a design that keeps you on your toes a lot going on big giant serpent tail thing and then it's beam weapons and all that when i look at it i think of like a ufo (laughs) <laughs> that's a good comparison yeah it's very uh kind of organic almond shape pill shape kind of design i like it i think it looks a little alienish. i mean we don't get to see it do too many things but the the crux piloting it he does grab tobia's muramasa blaster takes it out of his hand and he turns it on and tobia is about to basically die but bernadette you know yells at him and wakes him up i would say this was a new type connection a new type flash yeah i think so there's i mean We've had so much discussion about new types in this short series that I'm willing to go with that explanation. So Bernadette wakes Toby up. As soon as Toby wakes up, he turns on his eye field that we just learned about to grab the Muramasa blaster and stop it with his own hand. And then he shoves it back into the Elegalea. The Elegalea loses power. Toby knows that Bernadette's in there, so he tries to go get her out. So he opens the head up. He rips it open and extracts Bernadette in this perfectly packaged pilot pod. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, the crux bio unit gets mad and says, oh, well, Bernadette doesn't belong to you. And then I think probably the best line of the manga is said, Tobia responds, then I'll act like a pirate and plunder. And he rips Bernadette out <laughs> in the pilot pod. That was pretty cool. Something else, though, I thought was kind of interesting was if you remember Bernadette when she's before she's plundered, <laughs> she she's kind of thinking to herself while in the cockpit, you know, maybe there's part of my father that's still kind of good mm-hmm. because I think she was saying, I think he's at least subconsciously sent me in a battle hoping I would be rescued. Yeah, she says that a little bit later, and I, I just felt a little sorry for her. I, I was like, oh, you poor child. That thought seems very far-fetched to me. Uh, maybe, but at the same time, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It's, it's complex. <laughs> yeah. Did you believe her when she said it? I believe she generally thought that, and it was a, maybe a slight possibility. Yeah. Th- then again, at the same time, I was like, no, you, you sweet summer child. <laughs> this is like a Jupiter Empire tactic 101. Right. You know, use a hostage that the enemy can't shoot, and put it on one of your attacking mobile armors, and you'll win the battle. Yes. That was my thought. Call me a pessimist, I guess. Well, bless her innocent heart, Brian. <laughs> so Tobia regains his Muramasa blaster, and he sticks it in the Elegalea and fires. So his Muramasa blaster is not only a saber, but it's a gun, too. So and because he stuck it in the Elegalea and fired, I mean, it just blows the Elegalea to hell. So that's one crux bio unit down, Isaac. I don't know how many we got left, but still a lot. I'm going to say seven or eight, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at least eight, I, I suppose. Right, I think there's nine total. I think we've only destroyed one. <laughs> right, well, plus the one they destroyed in volume three. Oh, so maybe there were ten to, I don't know. We need a Dogati counter. Yeah, I would like to see a Dogati infographic. Hashtag Crux counter. <laughs> <laughs> so Tobia breaks Bernadette out of the pilot pod. They reunite in the X3. 
and we turn back to see the Mother Vanguard taking heavy fire, and we return to the duel with Zabini and Kincaid. They've got two sabers each now, Isaac. They're really going at it. They're really swashbuckling, and, you know, Kincaid's really not doing well. I actually thought Kincaid was going to kind of overpower Zabine here, but it's not going well for him, and he rips off his cockpit cover, saying the sensors are at their limit. And there's a cool shot here showing that the glass cockpit of the of the crossfighter, the core fighter, is still there, still covering him. But I got to say, Isaac, this seemed like a really bad idea, and you really got to know you can win if you're going to do this. Yeah, it's always a risky move, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm noticing a trend. If you remember in the Coliseum scene, there was also an exposed cockpit situation. <laughs> there was. People got to learn to protect the cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> That's the that's the series of shtick. Like there, there's gonna be lots of cockpit exposures. <laughs> so Bernadette's getting very nervous, you know, as they're slashing each other. So she goes out in the X2 crossfighter that they, you know, recovered when Toby escaped the Coliseum. Zabine knocks K- Kincaid's saber away, and and Zabine starts blaming Kincaid for everything, Isaac. We start seeing his his projection of anger here. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. His embodiment of rage? Yeah. <laughs> his hate meter he's he's had enough brian yeah he's he's blaming kincaid he's saying you know you screwed up everything because bernadette became attracted to you she threw away her her aristocratic principles which destroyed my dream of a noble aristocratic society he's doing well isaac because he's hopped up on adrenaline this is his his as you said his rage meter in his defense brian he was tortured like hours ago I think. that's true that's true so <laughs> he's had a long day all right yeah Zabine is about to finish Kincaid off, but Bear interferes with that crossfighter. She shoots Zabine a little bit. Zabine kind of just tosses the saber into her wing to get rid of her. But she actually did a good thing. She delivered the beam shield and two sabers to Kincaid to kind of rearm him. But Zabine takes aim at Kincaid and just stabs the X-1 through the crossfighter glass and cuts off the X-1's head. And I wrote down, oh my, Isaac, because I thought there was no way that Kincaid could survive that. Yeah, I thought we'd saw a kill. I was like, oh, wow, that's it. Of course. When you're in the end of the series, of course, more characters are going to die. Yeah, that would have been a brave move for sure to kill off Kincaid. Uh, but it's not looking good for him. So Tobia arrives, as he promised. He flies past Zabine. He grabs Bernadette's X2 you know, core fighter, cross fighter, which has now been stabbed by Zabine, so it was kind of flying out of control. So he recovers her, but he can't recover Kincaid, and, and the X1 falls toward Earth with no sign of life. It's got no head. And it just you know starts re-entering Earth's atmosphere. Tobia looks back, and it's 30 seconds until the Mother Vanguard blows up. Bernadette is now freaking out because the X-1's falling towards Earth. And she calls out to him with his real name, Isaac. She says Seabook, which maybe the first or not very many times she's called him Seabook in this, in this series so far. In the moment of, of loss, Brian, she said how she really felt by saying his true name. Yeah. And that moment of loss, Isaac, is, is followed by another loss because the Mother Vanguard then explodes. While I was sad to see the Mother Vanguard go, I also thought to myself, this was a good use of resources for the this, for this series. This is Gundam. We like to blow our stuff up. Yeah, especially the main ship, like at the climax, you know? Yeah. You got to use what you have, people, right? I mean, it's, it's sad to see some of the suits and stuff blow up, but you don't want to go through the whole series and the bad guys never lose, or the good guys never lose anything, right? So. Went out with a bang. <laughs> this is quite the bang and do you think the federation felt good about itself that it just like you know blew up one ship like they were pretty defenseless 
I think everybody did, but Harrison. <laughs> yeah. If you remember, I think Lieutenant Harrison, he was one of the pilots that got saved by, um, who did save him actually? Well, Kincaid let him live. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he clearly has a changed opinion on the, uh, crossbone Vanguard. So he probably wasn't too happy that their ship was destroyed outright rather than, you know, seized or at least, um, you know, incapacitated and boarded. So even though Tobia was not able to rescue Kincaid, he does have Bernadette in his cockpit and he's got Barra in the crossfighter. He must have at some point gotten into a reentry capsule and he's now touching down on Earth. And Tobia gets out and he sees a deer, which spooks him. <laughs> he's now on, literally on Earth. And 10 days later, we get a little explanation about what happened. We flash forward a little bit. Tobia reveals that the Mother Vanguard had these re-entry capsules in it for the Crossbone Vanguard's original planned invasion of Earth. And Bera decided to launch them when the Mother Vanguard exploded to sort of disguise the escape capsules as debris. And that's actually pretty genius, Isaac. I think that's the best thing she's done in the whole series. Yeah, it was a brilliant way to hide everybody's escape. I don't think I've seen that before in a Gundam series. I don't think so either. I mean, we've seen some re-entry capsules. No. We saw some in MS Igloo, which was cool, but not as like a way to hide as debris. That, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think it was at this point where they explained that the uh, the Mother Vanguard was originally designed to invade Earth for the Crossbone Vanguard. So these were not so much escape capsules as they were Earth invasion capsules. <laughs> right. And it's a pretty cool thing to kind of just acknowledge the original intentions of the Crossbone Vanguard. I thought that was a good throwback. Yeah. I mean, it also kind of explains, you know, why this unique ship was so ready to go. They're originally planning on invade Earth. They built this ship clearly looking very uh, piratey, crossbone vanguardy, and that's why it's really decked out and able to hold its own against fleets. So now they're on Earth, Isaac, and they're staying with a lumberjack in a cabin. <laughs> this is a little bit of a turn. Yeah, there was a, a, maybe the only time skip in, this, in the whole manga series. And of course, Isaac, it wouldn't be a, a volume of crossbone Gundam if we didn't get at least one shot of topless Bernadette. Or Barra. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> so we get our standard Bernadette boob scene in as Tobia walks in on her changing. And I didn't even like flinch this time. I just expected it. I was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. It's once a volume. I guess it was the 90s. I mean, right, Isaac, if, if, we, if, we, if they animate this, they're dropping all the Bernadette boobs, right? I don't know. I mean, in their defense, like it's a small cabin, so she has to change clothes somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's like maybe two rooms in this cabin. <laughs> It's a pretty small cabin, yeah. And Bernadette, I guess she's having a hard time getting used to gravity. And we also find out here, Isaac, probably more importantly, that the X3 is not functioning at the moment. It needs some parts from the parts store. Here's where they have the little heart-to-heart, -heart, and, and this is where she tells Tobia that she thinks her father put her in the mobile armor to let her escape indirectly. So, I don't know. That's debatable. I mean, anybody who's read Crossbone and you remember this part, please comment below what you think about that. I guess I can hear arguments either way. You know, maybe there was some good in him and like there's some subconscious working in his little bio brain cylinder thing. And then again, maybe she's just, you know, too naive to really realize what actually happened. Yeah, I have some thoughts on that. I'll save them to the end. And that night, Tobia finds Barra at a lake and they have a, another heart to heart. He's kind of having heart to hearts with everybody here. And she's broken up over Seabook's death, but she actually seems to be accepting it. I mean, Tobia, he's really refusing to accept that Kincaid has died. But Bera, she's kind of turning the corner here, Isaac. She's kind of like, it's okay, people die in war, and that's just kind of what happens. Like, she's not happy about it, but I felt like she was kind of accepting it. 
She probably saw this coming for a while, right? Like at any time, technically, any of her pilots could have died. Even him, even Seabook. Right. So, right. W- with their whole ship gone, with who knows how many members of their crew actually getting killed, it's logical to think, yeah, of course he died. He was in combat. Agreed. And then the Jupiter Empire enacts their plan, Isaac. Toby and the Lumberjack, they're watching the news, and a new war has broken out. Crux apparently launched a nuclear attack on a Federation satellite, and the Federation had no idea it was coming because they thought Crux was this Mr. Friendly emissary from, from the Jupiter sphere. The Federation Admiral is incensed, Isaac, and he demands Crux cease immediately, but Crux is like, ah, screw you, in 48 hours I'm going to nuke the Earth, and you're all going to be dead. And then the, the Admiral's like, but, 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 but the Antarctic Treaty... And Crux is like, eh, I don't care about the Antarctic Treaty. And I was just like, well, finally somebody said it. That was so great, right? Like, the Federation, once again, true to form, as usual, shows how stupid they were. Letting this enemy crawl up to their doorstep. Not even their doorstep. Get in their living room and then start attacking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, of course, it turns out, Brian, you can't trust the guy in robes with, like, sinister long hair who's hooked up to, like, breathing apparatuses and sits on a throne. You can't trust him, Brian. It, it's uh, Admiral Trusty thought he was a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was just thrown off because, you know, Crux's aquarium was so nice-looking and he had so many nice-looking fish in there that he thought he was trustworthy. <laughs> Speaking of fish, and not to sidetrack us, but something I realized about the fish, like, it's almost the ultimate wealth and power flex in the Jupiter Empire, the more I think about it, oh, because oh. if if water is rare enough that you dare not give an extra amount to a dying person or a sick person, the ability to you know submerge yourself in water, use it essentially for like decorative fish, um, <laughs> while you're in there you know breathing with a you know an oxygen tube, that must be the height of arrogance, showing your your pure waste for that much water. That's a good point. I did not think about that. It reminds me kind of a Blade Runner 2049, how like water is incredibly rare that like your shower lasts like, you know, 12 seconds. And then the main villain, he's in like a massive office that's like atop a giant pool of water. It's, you know, similar to how back in the day, aristocrats would have these huge meals and and all the peasants would eat bread, right? Or, you know. Or not not eat at all. Right, yeah. (laughs) Or gruel or whatever, you know, whatever they ate. Yeah, man. So at this point, Isaac, Crux lays out the what I'll call the first version of his plan that's revealed, because I think we get three or four of these. But he initially says that I want to wipe, I want to use these nukes to wipe out 60% of the surface of the Earth, and I want to keep the rest of the, the, the other 40% for the Jupiter Empire as our treasure. By doing that, he wants to get rid of the Federation at all costs, because as long as they exist, he will get nothing. And once they're gone, he can then establish a new order in space. And uh, we're going to get, like, a different version of that plan pretty quickly. Yes. <laughs> this this plan keeps... It apparently has, like, secret versions of this plan. How did you feel from a person who likes villains? Did you like that... I'll say his real plan was pretty much kept secret until the last few chapters. I appreciate the secrecy to it. I appreciate the big reveal. It's certainly different than what we get from most Universal Century uh, enemy factions. On the, at the same time... I don't know. I kind of would have liked maybe a super weapon doing the destruction. Mm. Not so much just nuclear weapons. That seems a little old-fashioned for Gundam. But, um, you know, it was interesting, you know. And I, I, I bought it. I was like, okay, yeah. He's going to, you know, take his people to their promised land, wipe out, you know, all the Earth Federation on Earth, and then they'll take over the, the small patches that aren't irradiated. 
I thought they did a good job of keeping his plan a mystery, and then, like yourself, I think I bought it by the end. I was like, okay, I think you did a good enough job convincing me. Yeah, I'm kind of curious, though, Brian. What were your thoughts on the 48-hour timetable? I was going to ask you the same thing. I don't know. Okay. They didn't really explain that, so I would consider that something they didn't explain very well. My headcanon for that is he has X amount of nukes, and he wants to destroy Earth while at the same time fighting the Federation and all that. He needs to, you know, with orbital mechanics and all that, whatever, he actually needs to get his ship at a certain point in Earth's orbit in order to hit all the targets he wants to hit. Mm, And it'll take 48 hours to actually do that. That was kind of the reasoning, I thought, as opposed to, why not just launch the nukes now? What are you waiting for? (laughs) They did kind of explain it in like one line a little bit later, Uh but it was a big enough plot point that I think it probably deserved more explanation. There's a a time later when Tenet Harrison says something like, oh, they've kept us fighting for 48 hours because they wanted to thin out our defenses. And I guess you're supposed to take that to mean that they they wanted to thin out the defenses for 48 hours, knowing that if you told them 48 hours, they would launch everything they had at you. And if you were able to fend them off, then when you actually launch the nukes, there'd be nothing left to actually stop the nukes. So I kind of get that. Yeah, that makes that meshes perfectly then. Because I guess if Admiral Trust Worthington, if his um, original plan, plan was to hold back the mobile suit forces and kind of wait for the incoming attack, maybe they would have been able to intercept enough of them that they could have defeated the Jupiter's 9? It could be, or at least stop the attack. Yeah, and then, well, at that point, with no nukes, I think the Jupiter's 9 might be on borrowed time. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and just a note to the readers, the Jupiter Empire here, they have a lot of nukes. It doesn't really take that many nukes to destroy the planet, or at least make it uninhabitable. When Isaac and I were in high school, one of the uh, debate topics was nuclear weapons, and we always used to say, you only need like 10 real good nukes to destroy the world whether it's functionally, economically, environmentally, if you place 10 in like decent spots, you'd basically cripple the world. So this dude, Crux Dogati, he's got, I don't know, how many nukes do you think he has, Isaac? I'm going to say in excess of 500. Yeah, he's got a lot. He's yeah. got way, you know, way more than necessary to do what he's setting out to do. Because when most people think of nukes, they think of the ones that were used in World War II. But the nukes today are much larger than those. Those are tiny compared to the ones that people have now. You know, and this is the universal century, so you got to imagine his nukes are, are bigger than the, the biggest ones we have now. I mean, we saw one nuke in 0083, and it was pretty devastating, right? Yeah, and also there could be multiple warheads in each missile, for all we know. So Dogati might be doing overkill. Well, he kind of is, as we find out later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> whatever yield and, you know, collective megatons, he initially told everybody it's he he undercounted <laughs> <laughs> yeah he undersold he's gonna over deliver everybody yes exactly yeah he <laughs> he goes big or he goes home <laughs> is that still accurate though you think brian i don't know i wonder if the earth is more resilient than we think we'll talk about it later in our nuclear weapons podcast <laughs> but um <laughs> i don't know i think the earth could handle a lot a limited nuclear war uh, I don't know, man. Those big ones are pretty big. I think it depends what you want. If you want fiery death right. like Crux wants, then yeah, you probably need more than 10. But if if you want humanity to be completely crippled, I think you only need 10. That's a good point. I guess it depends where they go, right? Going back to your original right. your original statement, right? If they hit the fresh water and like the farmland, you know, that's it. But um, you know, if they're in the middle of the desert, I think a lot of people would be okay. Yeah. Hopefully we never find out. Knock on wood. We'll yep. see. <laughs> Hopefully there's not a real Crux Dogati out there. <laughs> yeah, just 
because I mean he's doing great, right? <laughs> Once again, one ship is doing really great against multiple fleets. <laughs> but in the meantime, Isaac Tobia he needs to get the X three up and running, so he goes to a parts store, and this and he is shocked because he actually has to walk twelve kilometers to this store, and the the lumberjack guys well that's just what people do on Earth we walk. Tobia wanted to like some vehicle, and the guys like well, I don't have one. You just got you got to walk, and he he was blown away at that. And here, I don't know, I guess I thought Tobia was from Earth, but he turns out he's from the colonies. He's from the Earth Sphere colonies, but he's not actually from Earth. I originally thought he was from Earth because they said he was a transfer student from, from Earth. What did you think about that? I don't remember catching if he was a transfer student from Earth, but what I thought was more interesting that is, is something he said that I'd never even considered. If you've lived in a colony and say, you know, it's a cylinder, you're on one point of the colony and you need to go to the opposite side to go to the store, for example. Mm-hmm. You walk, you know, half the circumference. You just walk the other half to get home. Yeah. So that to- Tobia was thinking to himself, you know, I would have been home already. Right. <laughs> That's pretty much what he was saying. I'd be back at the cabin already. That's right. So being from Earth, I haven't really considered how things work in a colony before. But that was a really interesting little piece of, uh, you know, an interesting sentence that really fleshes out the lore and the world of Gundam more. I agree. This this series did a good job at that. It, it tried multiple times, and I think at least one of them will hit home for you, trying to describe the differences between the people who live in the colonies, who live in Jupiter, and, and who live on Earth. So Toby ends up going to the park store, Isaac, and on the way back, he finds the Quavarza parked at the cabin, and turns out the Death Gale squad has, has taken over the cabin. They've tied up uh, everybody, and on the news, it's reported that a Federation spaceport was just taken out by three mobile suits. So clearly that was a Death Gale squadron. And here's where we get the first... Re- the plan has changed, Isaac. So your pal, <laughs> your pal Geary, or Jiri, reveals that the 40% that Crux told us earlier was a lie told to their own Jovian followers. So the 40% that he wanted to keep as treasure was a lie. He now reveals that he has enough nukes to destroy 100% of the surface of the Earth. Nothing will be left. And his, his plan is to transform Earth into a planet of death. And getting rid of the Federation is just a side effect. So were, were you shocked at this revelation? Or how did you, how did you take yeah, this? Yeah, I, I was a bit shocked at, like, you know, the whole promised land. Or we're going to take over Earth for the Jupiter Empire. And we'll get all these resources. And we won't have to live under such Spartan conditions. I'm surprised that was all just a lie. And he actually is going to destroy all life on Earth. And it's just going to be essentially a giant asteroid that they mine for resources and they just live in colonies. Gary seems pretty gung-ho about it though, but like she did say that they kind of needed this lie to kind of keep the the rest of the Jupiter troops going. So apparently they have to be convinced that they're going to live in a paradise on earth to keep fighting rather than the reality that really almost nothing will change except they'll control another sphere in the solar system. Yeah. I guess you got to tell a lie to get the people to go along with that. I guess so, but I don't know. Dogadi has so much power. I'm not sure he even needed to lie. Yeah. <laughs> what, what are the troops going to do? Like say, no, we're not going to go ahead with that plan. <laughs> no, I mean, some of the troops would like probably do whatever he tells them and they'll execute anybody who doesn't go along with it. Yeah, that's true. Toby asked why, like, why are you doing this? Like, what will this accomplish? Gary says, well, this will just make humanity easier to rule over. All, you know, all resources will be controlled by a ruling class and there will be no more need for wars over earth everything will just be like everyone who lives it on jupiter or near jupiter right now so they're basically taking the the jupiter sphere blueprint of society and, and putting it on earth 
And Tobia calls out Burns because Burns is here and asks him if this is really what he wants and, and gets no response. I mean, clearly Burns does not really want this. So there's your Burns moment, Isaac. Were you satisfied or you, do you wish it was a bigger moment for Burns? Oh, a bigger moment is coming, Brian. But <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, I'm very glad that, as we predicted, Burns is clearly not on board with a lot of the bad things his government's doing. And, and Gary's just insane. <laughs> yeah, Gary's, Gary's pretty nuts. He, let me ask you a question. Based on the animation, is Gary a man or a woman? I could have sworn she was a woman, and then in this volume, she looked a lot like a man. <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, I think I'm pretty sure is a man based on what he he does here, unless this okay. was just a very progressive book, but yes, in, a, in a little okay. bit of a rapey way. <laughs> raspberry, though, we, we can confirm as a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Raspberry's for sure a woman. So Gary asked Toby if he wants a chance to survive, and he plays a, a video of Karis asking Tobia to come back because they need young people like Tobia for the upcoming wars in space uh, with colonies that, you know, that, that will not bend to the Jupiter Empire, especially new types like Tobia. And Tobia refuses. So then Gary does something that will that makes Tobia completely lose, you know, loses. And here's where I'm pretty sure Gary's a man. So Gary says he's going to take the princesses back. He plans to take Bernadette for himself. And then he makes fun of her for having small boobs. <laughs> but bets that she'll be more attractive in two to three years. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't think that one's going to make it into the anime, everybody. I think that I'd line be might be cut. <laughs> I think he and Kenneth went to school. Kenneth from uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Hathaway's Flash. They, they were friends at the same college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were in the same frat, for sure. You know, Gigi, I think you should sleep with me. <laughs> <laughs> this just sets Toby off, Isaac. And he goes into rage mode, and he's tied to a chair right now, but it doesn't matter. He gets up, and he decks uh, Gary, and the, the troops are about <laughs> to shoot. But then the lumberjacks oh, – oh, by the way, the lumberjack had a, had a pet ape. A chimp or an orangutan, something like that. It, it wasn't a little spider monkey. This is like a sizable monkey. Right, it was <laughs> a big. A sizable yeah. ape. Yeah. He comes back in this worker mobile suit that the lumberjack had and trashes the cabin and causes chaos and the, all the Death Gale squad and their troops – you know, they, they run away, they get in their suits, and they trash the worker mobile suit, poor ape. Tobia and the Lumberjack, they get in the X3, try to get it working, and it only it's not working, the new parts aren't working, and then the Lumberjack does the classic thing, Isaac, where he just hits the controls until it boots up. <laughs> uh, classic maneuver. And then we get a, a good fight here between Tobia and the Death Gale squad. Tobia catches the Quavarza whip with his eye-field hand, uh, but everyone kind of sucks on Earth, Isaac, because they've never been here before. They don't know how to, they don't know how to fight. Tobia tries to fly away, but he falls. But the Death Gale squadron, they're also moving slower, too. They, they don't know how to fight in gravity, either. But Toby is still doing pretty well. He's dodging them all. We get to see the Quivars that transform into this dragon-looking thing. That was pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, I was wondering, is this, like, it's atmospheric mode? Is this, like, Earth mode or something like that? Because if you remember, in almost all Universal Century series, you need to, like, Put your, your gun number, your mobile suit into the shop before you go to Earth so that, it, you know, the vernier thrusters and all the movements and stuff account for gravity. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, oh, is he the only one that has an Earth-capable mobile suit? So it kind of threw me for a loop. Also, why is it transforming now? I agree. I was wondering about that, too. I mean, we didn't... Again, I guess it's a limited manga series, so maybe they just don't have enough time to, like, spend on things like that, but... But I agree, it, it did seem a little quick to just kind of be working very well. Maybe if they were to animate that, they would either get rid of the transformation or expand upon it a little bit. Maybe we'd see, I don't, can't remember it if it transformed before. I don't think so, but maybe it did. No, I don't remember seeing it do it in space. Yeah. Here we get one of my favorite parts of the manga. <laughs> 
so while the Quivars is transformed, he grabs the tail whip thing and starts spinning it around. And he spins it around like Mario spins Bowser in Super Mario 64, which I'm pretty sure this is based on. Because if you think about it, Crossbone Gundam was written between 94 and 97, and Mario 64 came out in 96. And this would have been about that time, and Mario 64 was like a big thing. So I, I bet this is based on Mario spinning Bowser. That's my hot take for today, Isaac. I'll buy it, because like... Geary was very surprised that his tail got grabbed, you know, like as if it was impossible to actually do that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he started being spun on like a top. He spins the Quivarza into the Abajo, just like, you know, you'd spin Bowser into the bombs. Tobia plunges his, his crossbone knives into the Abajo, tells Rosemary to get out, and then shoots it with his Vulcans from point blank range, just kind of destroying the Abajo. So now one of the Death Gale squad is done. And also, Isaac, I want to point out here, there were so many opportunities for Rosemary boob bounces in the animated version of this that I can't wait. It's going to be off the chart. Every time they cut a Bernadette boob shot, they're definitely going to replace it with a Rosemary boob bounce. That's my prediction yeah, here. Probably just to and fro, right? Left and right, just swaying around. You thought Seed had a lot of boob bounces, listeners. Wait till they oh. animate Crossbone and you meet Rosemary <laughs> Raspberry. Wait till they get to Earth's gravity and she has to account for that. <laughs> So the only person he hasn't fought yet is Burns. He, Tobia uh, evades kind of that shield spike ram attack. <laughs> Poor Burns. He has one move. <laughs> yeah, I really think Burns got the short stick. I, I don't know. I guess if they were to animate this, I would. I kind of hope that Burns would get something better. The, the Tortuga is just a little boring for me. Yeah, if, if you remember when he was assigned to the Tortuga and the Death Gale Squadron, he was so not interested, not enthused, <laughs> right? Right, yeah. Like, he had to do it, but like maybe they picked him because they knew he wouldn't complain, you know? <laughs> he was ace number seven that they asked to do it. <laughs> and like, you know, they got to him and he was like, finally, somebody said yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he got notoriety for going toe to toe with the crossbones, which are known for their maneuverability. And then you give him this thing that can't maneuver. Right. Uh, and the mobile suits he was previously piloting were like, they were quick. They had guns and stuff. Right. You know, they were kind of your general purpose, um, you know, space combat mobile suit. And then they put him in the, essentially a movable wall. <laughs> Toby does something pretty smart here. He gets away from Burns. He hides in the capsule, but he hid the Miramasa blaster in the capsule and pokes it through into the Tortuga, causing the goo to come out which then sticks Burns to the capsule and he can't get away. So Toby just goes around and stabs the, tor- the Tortuga with the, the Muramasa blaster and, and kind of just punches it in deeper. This is just another example of, of how good the fights are in this manga, Isaac. They're just very, very detailed. It's not like he just slashed the Tortuga to win, right? There was this whole plan where he, he hid the blaster in the, in the pod. I, I just think that's very creative and that, that makes it fun to read rather than just you know slash, slash, and one of them kind of gets through. Yeah, it was also pretty brilliant too, right? Like, if he left everything at the cabin and something happened at the cabin, everything would be found there, right? So leaving it at the pod and for whatever reason, the the Jupiter, the Death Gale Squadron didn't even check the pod. Actually, did they know about it or they just... They, they may have seen it. I, I don't know if they went inside and looked at it. So maybe they saw it and they were like, no one would leave their mobile suit at the pod. Right. It's useless now that it's on Earth. And then they just went to the cabin. Or they never saw it and then wouldn't know to search it. So, but in any case, yeah, not only was it cool that he hid it in there, but he didn't bother leaving the pod to use the weapon. He just went through the wall. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So he's taking out the Abajo. He's taking out the Tortuga. So the only one left is that Quivarza and the whip wraps around his neck. 
and Toby is kind of pretty much he's stuck here. Isaac, he's a, he's gonna die. I mean, Geary's got him wrapped up. He's gonna shoot him in the back, uh, right into the crossfighter. But a mobile suit comes flying above the woods. It's got a cloth wrapped around it, around its head. Pilot says, "Wait for me, Tobia," and his face is bandaged. I mean, it's got to be our pal Kincaid, right? That's right. It's Seabook. He's back. Seabook lives. And uh, Tobia gets a, a, a telepathic message, a new type message, telling him to r- relax and lower his top thruster. And so he lowers his thruster and it bonks the Quivarza kind of on the head. It, it knocks the Quivarza into the ground right as it fires its, its beam weapon. And basically just, you know, everyone falls over. And uh, the X-1 comes flying in overhead and it uses its own whip against the Quivarza whip which cuts off the cloak to reveal the X-1. So now we, we're confirmed that we're dealing with Kincaid here. And Geary thinks, oh, this is impossible. And uh, he fires, and Kincaid jumps. And again, we get another good battle detail here. Kincaid jumps high and throws the cloak as a decoy. Geary can't see now because the cloak is in front of where the X-1 was. And he slashes at the cloak. But Kincaid goes low and plunges his own whips into the Quivarza, turns them on, and I, it turns out they spin like drills. Isaac, did did you know that? Did you expect that? No, I didn't. This came out of nowhere. <laughs> well, I don't think Geary expected it either because it totally just wrecked the Quivarza. Yeah, it's, it's gone. <laughs> yeah. So, listeners, the, Geary lost a big time. He got drill whips. Finally. I guess he won't be drilling Bernadette. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what you get. You got to come up and just the up <laughs> delivered by Seabook. <laughs> So Kincaid gets out of the cockpit to reunite with Tobia, but Geary gets out too and points a gun at them. Kincaid draws his own gun. Geary says, I can't go back to Crux now with this failure. And he points the gun at himself, Isaac, further revealing Geary's sort of mental health problems. But Burns actually grabs the gun and stops Geary. I thought that was a good touch, right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so Geary will live to fight another day, I think. I think he's in one of the sequels, The Steel 7. Oh, wow. As a good guy or a villain? Did they Zabine him? <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. We'll find out in maybe okay. you know, three, four weeks here. The Federation arrives, so Toby and Kincaid fly away, you know, back to Barra. And it is revealed that he now has what, Isaac? He's taken some damage to more places than just his face, unfortunately. Yep, and he has a metal right hand. Yet another Star Wars reference. I mean, they just keep piling up. Dogati is Palpatine. Comment below if you agree. And at this point, now the Death Gale Squadron, I mean, they're kinda, they've kind of been neutered, right, Isaac? They have no more suits. <laughs> Can't be a squadron without suits. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the Lumberjack's like, well, I guess you can stay in my friend's cottage. We have to listen to the news again, Isaac. We now learn that we have 24 hours left until Dogati launches his nuclear assault. And, but we also learn that the Jupiter Empire forces apparently are great and the Federation apparently sucks because all Federation bases on Earth have been rendered inoperative. I mean, the more I think about it, the more this is a case of the Jupiter Empire really surpassing Zeon, right? For all Zeon's power, they never completely wiped out every Federation base. But apparently, the Jupiter Empire has. I mean, does this mean Jabro has been taken out? If Jabro's still a usable base at this time? and Yeah, I mean, I guess they didn't show us to what extent they had been rendered inoperative. I mean, I assume that doesn't necessarily mean that the base was blown up, just that it's ability to launch mobile suits or you know capital ships into space had been taken out yeah that's probably the best way to put it right because at the end of the day jupiter empire is one ship so i don't think they can necessarily put troops on the ground at every base 
So I'm sure they just lobbed missiles where they could or beam attacks. But you're right, though. I mean, Jabro has to be on the list. You'd have to start with that one almost, wouldn't you? Maybe. I don't, I don't know at what point in the timeline Jabro like, was no longer used or maybe was relocated or they didn't see the need for like a deep underground base like that. But it's certainly possible Jabro got taken out for once. Another thing to think about, too, is that there haven't been really that many conflicts in the last 10 years. Yeah. So they could have just been not prepared. I mean, yeah, clearly they weren't. Dogati was so close to Earth and, you know, shaking hands with Admiral Trustworthy and everybody else doing his tour, tours of the colonies and all that. So I guess he timed it right. He needed those 48 hours. Everybody's in position. <laughs> Who do you think was more of an idiot? Admiral Trustworthy from Crossbone Gundam or the Admiral from 0083 that arranged the naval review and put himself in the middle where he couldn't get away? I'm going to say Admiral Trustworthy, and I'm going to give Admiral Earl Grey a, a not, not a complete pass, but like half a pass, because above him, there were like Jamatov and other admirals who were clearly conspiring against the whole situation. Mm-hmm. So that factor kind of gives him some forgiveness for thinking they'd be safe. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I guess you're right. Admiral Earl Grey wasn't playing with a full deck, right? It was, it was rigged. Admiral Trustworthy, though, like, there's almost no excuse for why this situation happened. You know, I don't even think they inspected the Jupiter's Nine when it showed up. Clearly, clearly <laughs> not. Yeah, you would have found nukes, like, in the first hour, right? <laughs> hey, what do you got here? Oh, no. <laughs> Death gas. <laughs> this can't be good. Mobile armors. <laughs> My question was answered later on, but at this point I was also wondering, well, like, okay, the Federation is disabled, but what about everything on Luna, and what about all the colonies? Aren't they going to help? Apparently not, Brian, <laughs> because none of them come to the rescue. See, this is this is the part that kind of not so much loses me, but like I was wondering if things had changed dramatically in the Earth sphere because the Earth Federation isn't just Earth, right. you know. So shouldn't there be multiple fleets at the sides that can just quickly rush to their aid? Yeah, or or maybe that's what the 48 hours was about. I mean, maybe the bulk of Luna slash the colony forces couldn't get there within 48 hours. I don't know. That's I an orbital that. mechanics yeah. question. Yeah, it's. I would like this fleshed out way more in the series if it happens. And then here we get yet another Star Wars reference. I, I feel like Hasegawa, he's just like, hey, do you get it yet? Star Wars is good. I really like it. Because Burns reveals that the Jupiter's 9 has a weak spot between two construction blocks and that you should go shoot a missile right there and you'll crack the Jupiter's 9 in half. This is very clearly a Death Star reference. This kind of moves Burns from being like a good guy to an outright hero. Uh, As we find out later on, to an extent, he almost single-handedly saved the day by revealing this information. Right, yeah. In the anime version of this, Isaac, I want the Federation to give Burns uh, an F-91. And I want him to, want to, to join uh, Lieutenant Harrison's squad. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. And he needs to live. He, none of right. this nonsense where, like, he switches sides and dies, you know. Burns needs to live. Wait, did he die? Did he die? No, but I want to make sure if, oh, they yeah, do yeah. It, if, this, if a series is done, they don't put him on the list of characters that dies. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think he needs to live. He needs to get his wish to end up on Earth. And I just think it was a, it was a disappointment, I think, that we didn't get to see Burns pilot again really yeah but at the same time you know as much as he's against what his government's done i think he also wouldn't want to fight his own people too you know yeah he's a man with the code yeah that's fair 
but beyond that advice, Burns doesn't really have anything else to to offer. And Kincaid says, "Well, what we have to offer to offer is the Crossbone Gundams. They don't know we have them, so we're going to go, you know, take the fight to them, basically. And so we need to go to this base where our allies are. And they take this like what looked like a new version of the Medea. Did you, did you see that plane, Isaac? Yeah, I was like, oh, please tell me this is named like the Matilda class or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder what it's called. I didn't actually look it up, but if any listeners know. Yeah, the, w- the wings are a little different, but our headcanon will be that it's called the Matilda class. A flash up to space here. The Federation is still trying to attack the Jupiter's Nine, but is apparently failing. And how bad do you have to be, Isaac? It's one ship. The gunners aboard the Jupiter's sounded really confident, right? Like, they've been doing, like, this great job defending the ship for hours. Yeah, I don't know. They're, they're able just... to shoot down everything. There's no damage at all on the ship. Is the only competent pilot in the Federation Lieutenant Harrison at this point? I'm going to say maybe not. It might just be a case of them being outclassed by what the Jupiter Empire built. I'll give them some credit, right? Because they're using F-91s. I don't think they have a ton of budget either because if you remember, the fleet that shows up to back up Sherry, they had balls. <laughs> so <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and most of them aren't even using the F-91s. They're using, I think, the uh, the heavy guns. Yeah, which which did horrible against Denon's Zons. So I'm going to guess that the Jupiter Empire has built way more capable weapons. And yeah, this is, this is a case of just being outclassed. No matter how good your pilots are, you, the machines that the enemy's using and you're using are on different levels. We do get a scene here where Crux is surprised that Karis isn't worried that Geary didn't return. And Karis says there's no point in worrying about people who've been defeated, which... Man, Karis is just like, he's a psycho, man. I mean, it, it looks like 9 out of 10 people in the Jupiter Empire are all on board the, the Dogati train, right? Yeah. Burns is the only one we've seen who like is not on board with this. That's true. And he's an officer. <laughs> yeah, so you got to think everyone else below him d- doesn't yeah. think quite as, uh, yeah, that's nuts. Well, I guess there were those two people that helped them escape back in like volume two. Yeah, but they're dead, Brian. Yeah, they're probably, <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were put out the airlock <laughs> shortly after the volume ended in off, yeah. off screen within minutes. <laughs> so Crux assigns the new type squad to Karis, the formerly escorted to Eligalea, I think. Zabine is, I don't know, he's like prostrate on the floor here, begging to Crux. What a worm he's turned into, Isaac. Yeah, this is very unzabine, isn't it, Brian? I know time's gone by, but it's night and day as far as I'm concerned. He's gone insane. So, yeah, he he just wants to be used as a tool in any way Dogeti thinks is best. And his warped mind is willing to treat Dogeti as the aristocrat he needs to follow and all that nonsense. But it's kind of working here because Crux says, oh, well, I wouldn't mind handing over Earth to either Karis or Zabine. I mean, it's going to be a rock, though. Yeah. So I'm sure Karis would be okay managing a rock. But (laughs) Zabine, I very clearly think Zabine is operating on the assumption that he will have 40% of the planet with habitable land to rule. Right. Zabine is letting his own ambitions blind him to Crux's ambition. Yeah. And also, the real plan is clearly withheld from almost everybody except a handful of people. Right. So we flash over to the Federation base that they took the Matilda to where we see a bunch of mass-produced crossbone Gundams attacking the base. Uh, these are apparently called Flints, our old friends from the Crossbow Vanguard, the guy that throws the knives, the girl, and uh, the <laughs> old old guy, Uman. 
they're all piling flints. I think there's three of them. What'd you think of the flints, Isaac? Okay. As our readers know, I haven't been too gung-ho about wanting a crossbone Gundam because I think um, it's a little too piratey for my taste. But these look awesome, Brian. I like how they have like a targeting eye. Did yeah, you notice that? I did, yeah. You know, something to help them target. They've got these really cool rifles. They just look great. They're such a great design. It's like, I don't know, it's like a, co- a crossbone ranger, a crossbone assault trooper or something like that. Color scheme is actually purple, as I understand. I'm all on board for Oh, sh- come on. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's right up your alley. <laughs> yeah, Dom colors. Here we go. <laughs> I'm going to customize mine with like Dom legs, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a a flint with bell bottoms. (laughs) The flint thick version. There you go. It's going to, it's going to (laughs) hover. Can you imagine how big the Dom legs would be on a flint given that it's a miniature mobile suit? Yeah. They actually wouldn't be that big overall, I think, but yeah. (laughs) Oh, we, we find out a few things about what happened here as we watch the flints go to town. Kincaid reveals that he actually was okay. He re-entered the atmosphere with the beam shield when he lost his Sabine when he fell to Earth. And that SNRI picked him up after he fell to Earth and patched him up, and that's why he's still alive. And that SNRI also provided these flints to the Crossman Vanguard. They'd kind of just been holding them out before. So, Isaac, SNRI is kind of magic in this series. If you notice, they kind of just operate above the law, but they're supposed to be the Federation, but they're clearly not... Like, why is the Federation not outfitted with these flints? Isn't, wasn't the whole point of SNRI for the Federation to have their own mobile suit development and not have to rely on Shady Anaheim, who backstabs everybody? Yeah, I'm going to run down this road, though, in, in a way that I think really makes a ton of sense. Okay, SNRI kind of spun off and kind of became its own company in a way, right? Even though it's, you know, an institute, per se, so maybe like some type of nonprofit. But it's pretty much functioning as its own company. And, like Anaheim... It wants to do shady stuff, but clearly always in the Federation's favor, not working both sides against the middle. So with that in mind, SNRI knew things might get bad, especially when the Jupiters showed up. So they cranked out the flints, kept them in reserve, and got ready in case they needed to give them to uh, the good guys. Okay. Think of what a good Anaheim would do. That is what SNRI did. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. I would really like to see a kit of the flints at the 1 100th scale. There's 1 100th scales of all the crossbones of the F91s. I don't think there's one of the flints, though. I could be wrong about that. But I think that would be that's a perfect kit for the re 100 line that's like not master grade, but 1 100 scale, just because I'm not sure how many people would buy it. But I think that would be a perfect candidate for the re 100 line. So if, if any listeners share that opinion, let me know. Who, who wants a flint kit? I'm going to go a step further. I'd rather have a flint than any of the crossbone Gundams. Wow. They look just so much more aggressive, right? Like, I don't know. The gun and the sight eye, it's like a sniper crossbone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I would just like to see that that purple. I, we just don't have a whole lot in that color. So I think it'd be a good change of pace. Yeah. I wonder what colors Trooper Empire has been using most of the time in this manga. Yeah, I think the Quivars uh, is red. Okay. Of course. I'm pretty sure the Tortuga's <laughs> black. I think the Abajo was, like, multicolored. Okay. I'm sure the Batala was, like, a really bland brown or something. I hope not. That's, ter- that's a terrible color for a <laughs> The X1 and X3 arrive, and we find out that they came to this base because, although their, like, you know, launching capability is gone, this base still has uh, rocket fuel. 
And so what the the Crossbone Vanguard is planning to just launch the Crossbone Gundams and the Flints into space using their beam shield as a way to get out of the atmosphere because that's that worked for Kincaid coming in, so he thinks it'll work going out. Yeah, it was interesting that Kincaid said that he was the first person in history that probably used a beam shield to re-enter Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably you don't want to be the first guy to do that, I don't think. No, but fortunately he survived, so it's it, the logic makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I guess it could work. Meanwhile, Tobia writes an email to Sherry, who apparently wrote him and wanted him to join her after the battle to again awaken her new type powers. She really has a thing for Tobia here, Isaac. She's really not letting him go. No, but I mean, who could blame her? <laughs> yeah. Toby is pretty great, right? Yeah, I mean, he's one of a kind. Uh, but Tobia says, yeah, Bernadette's worried that she's gonna that he's going to go to Sherry. I think she's a little jealous. Um, but Toby says, don't worry, I'm not going. I'm going to fight this battle. And Bernadette then says that she believes her father's already dead and that a copy crux is in control and that Tobia should stop him. We're going to find out later that that's not true. This is very similar to the conversation they had before where she said, oh, I think my, my father put me in the mobile armor so that I could escape indirectly. This is just another layer in the what's going on with Bernadette. Uh, what did you think about this one? I thought it was just such a weird thing to say, right? First, she thought he put her in a space for her to get rescued. Then she thought he was dead. Did she think he was on, I don't know. Did she think that he was originally killed back all the way on IO? So what makes her say this now? So I don't know. She's going through a lot. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't tell if she was changing her mind, that it, there wasn't anything good left, and therefore a copy crux must be in control or... I don't know. I think that's definitely something that could be expanded upon if if you were to animate this a little bit. Or just show some backstory, right? Like, she clearly likes her yeah. father for some reason. Show a situation where she thought he was killed. Like, she thought he was on that mobile armor and when it blew up, you know? And then we'd yeah. be like, okay, Dogeni's actually gone, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, later on, we're like, oh, God, no, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, here, Barra starts freaking out a little bit, too. She asks Kincaid not to go. She calls him Seabook again. And he says, oh, I'm still Kincaid, and I have to go so that Cecily Fairchild can come back. So there's, they're really playing up this whole, like, identity crisis. Like, I, you know, I'm Kincaid until I don't have to be anymore, and you're Barra until you don't have to be anymore. So they, they share a kiss. How did you feel about this um, second name business? Did that work for you? Yeah, it's very much like, okay, we have these assumed identities that we took on just for fighting the Jupiter Empire. The Jupiter Empire is still around. This is clearly going to be our, the final battle against them one way or the other so let's keep up with our names once we're done with the business if we win and survive then we'll go back to being who we really are it's also a very aristocratic notion i feel like that's very noble very shakespearean so i feel like that fits with the theme yeah kind of romantic in its own way i'll be who you love after the war exactly and they seal it with a kiss isaac oh of course the power of love So the Gundams blast off Isaac with the fuel that they got from this base. Sherry gets Tobia's email, which is apparently a thing still. Tobia basically tells her, you know what, I'm not, I'm not coming. New types are just humans adapting to space, just like humans adapt to any environment. Uh, but we're still humans all the same. So I thought that was a nice, that was a nice notion. Yeah, he, he went into that whole explanation, right? Like how the whole, whole you know, humans in space, like their souls are lighter, blah, blah, blah. Humans in space, they're, we're turning into new types because there's no gravity and all that. We're moving away from Earth. He very much shut that down, right? Like, no, that that's nonsense. We've always been adapting into whatever environment we go to. So in a way, our whole species are new types. 
Right. And he compared it, I think, to the people on Earth having to walk 12 kilometers. He's like, that's what they do here. That's what they just adapt into their environment. When, when they have to do something, they, they go walk. We don't do that in space, so why are we any different? So that's an interesting take. I don't think we've had another character have that take, have we, in the past? No, I don't even think in Unicorn they really broke down the whole argument about old types and new types, right? No, no one in Unicorn was that level-headed. <laughs> no, no, this is the first time we've actually had it, had it kind of reduced and dismissed. I feel like Toby is pretty grounded like that. I like Toby. He's smarter than he looks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in space, the Jovians have thousands of nukes ready to go, Isaac, so our question is answered. They have way too many. Then here we get our, our comment from uh, Lieutenant Harrison where they've been fighting for two days, and, and now there's you know no one left to stop the actual nukes. But the crossbones approach from underneath with the rockets. The Jupiters deploys some Batalas to intercept, and uh, the Flints come out in front. They take the Batalas, and they let Toby and Kincaid go through. But they're not, they're not fast enough, Isaac. They're going to get intercepted. When Lieutenant Harrison swoops in and blows the Batalas away with his VSBRs. And this, this was our moment, you know, where uh, Lieutenant Harrison gets to interact again with Kincaid. And he tells Kincaid, you know what, I understand your intentions and you're free to go ahead. I might even try to get you a good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> again, if they ever animate this, I think this would be a great scene kind of one of those scenes that you hope for the whole time, right? They built it up in in the beginning. You really hope to see it pay off in the end. I do hope that if they ever animate it, that they maybe get a little more interaction other than meeting twice over communications. He's, he's, Lieutenant Harrison seems like a cool dude that could garner a lot of fans and sell a lot of model kits. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. What's cool about this scene is like all the good guys are finally on like the table for the final battle. And Harrison's, I'm glad he lives, so clearly he's skillful, right? Because right. who knows how many um, Federation pilots have been killed at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so everybody's ready for their hero moments. And speaking of hero moments, Kincaid and Tobia, they head into the Death Star Trench. I mean, the Jupiter's Trench. And they fire a nuke at the area that Burns told them to fire into. And it, just, it basically just cracks the Jupiter's nine in half. Burns said it was a weak point. I didn't know he meant it would break the ship in half. <laughs> I thought, like, I don't know, it would disable the, you know, the power to power the ship or it would, you know, stop the engine. But, I mean, the ship's pretty much done at this point. <laughs> right. And if, you, if you're Lieutenant Harrison and you see him just fly up and crack the ship in half, are, you got to be like, son of a <laughs> Like, what were we doing for the last two days? Yeah. Also, you're like, whatever the crossbone uh, mobile suits tell us to do, like, you know, squad leaders, follow it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> We're no longer listening to Federation command until the battle's over. <laughs> Clearly, Admiral, what was his name? Admiral McTrusty? Trustworthington. <laughs> oh, Admiral Trustworthington is inept at his job and we shouldn't take orders from him anymore. No, I hope he was killed by now. I don't think we ever see him again. He might have died in combat, right? He, he may have, yeah. I would assume he'd be high on the target list. Yeah, his capital ship was destroyed at some point. <laughs> uh, we flash inside the Jupiterist, which obviously is not doing well, right? They just cracked it in half. Panic sets in. There's critical damage everywhere. Crux reveals that he is going out and that he can't trust his own forces anymore. So five Cruxes, I think it's, I mean, I think we see five. I, tr I think I counted five. Break out of their aquariums, uh, presumably to go out <laughs> to their mobile suits. But Isaac, when they break it out of their aquariums, I was asking myself, like, so did you even need to be in the aquariums then? No, exactly, Brian. It was all a flex. Like, as we're about to see in the cockpits, there's no water in there. No. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it was, you're right, it purely was a flex. I mean, It was the ultimate flex. In a society where water is extremely scarce, 
if you can essentially be like in a pool while giving orders to people, you're just showing how superior and more powerful you are than them. Yeah, that's nuts. So Toby is super excited now because they brought down the Jupiter's Nine. But Kincaid, he knows it's not over because Crux is still alive. So they boost in to go for the kill. But Toby gets separated. And suddenly a wire attack shreds like a heavy gun next to Tobia. Maybe a few of them actually. So they're like, uh-oh, something else is coming. And all of a sudden Karis appears. Karis reveals himself in this mollusk-looking mobile armor, which I believe is called the Nautilus. Of course. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> and he's got some more Quivarzas with him. You know, Tobias says, I don't want to fight you. I just want to stop Degati. And Karis is like, well, only the strong turn their will into reality. So if you want to win, you're going to have to defeat me. What did you think about the, the Nautilus, Isaac? I thought this was a very unappealing design. Yeah, but it, it's very Jupiter Empire, right? Because they had giant crabs. They had those mobile suits that had like beam blade fronts that look kind of like fish. Yeah, that's true. Dogati, you know, he's always in an aquarium. So clearly he gave instructions to like the engineering teams. <laughs> you know, every des- almost half of our designs, they either have to be skeletal or they have to be <laughs> aquatic. <laughs> sea life related. And they were like, okay, we'll do that. <laughs> and this is what they made. You know, he said, you know, Karis is kind of my right-hand man. So make sure he gets something really cool. And like, all right, we'll make him like a mollusk. <laughs> and he's like, sure, just make it a mobile armor. Oh, yeah, yeah. So before we get to see the duel with Karis, we flash back to Harrison. And we get probably the coolest shot in the entire manga, Isaac. So Harrison's looking at the Jupitris, and something huge and sinister is emerging. It's a giant mobile armor called the Divinidad. And again, this feels like this would be a great scene in an anime version, possibly one of the most ominous things in any Gundam anime. The panel was fantastic here, because you think it's just one. And then to make matters worse, Isaac, there are at least seven of them that come out. And you're just like, holy Right. One looked bad enough, right? One was massive enough that it dwarfs any mobile armor I think we've ever seen. And then, you know, the buddies show up because they're all being piloted by the Dogati uh, clones or mandroids, whatever they are. Right. And these things look like, oh, God, it's like it's hard to describe. Kind of a skeletal, giant armed, pointy headed monster. Yeah, I wrote down. angel-winged eagle warrior skeletons with massive talon hands just imagine like you know a god of nightmares that's what this is that's what this looks like the god of nightmares they are frightening and i believe they're like a silver gray color isaac so that that kind of leans into the skeletal design and it showing their power right out the gate one of them like goes over to a clop that unfortunately was was too close to the Jupitris, probably thought it could get closer now that the ship was broken in half, and it just uses one hand to crush it. Yeah, tears it in half. It's ridiculous. And takes no damage. Yeah, and Harrison, of course, is just like, well, all right, well, everybody attack. Don't, like, don't let him get to Earth. Yeah. <laughs> and we've never had that many mobile armors on the field at once, have we? No, we haven't, but, I mean, the Earth, the Earth has never been in this situation before. You know, the Jupiter Empire is minutes from victory. How do you rank this in your mobile armor aesthetic? You know, I know you have the noise zeal at the top. Where does this rank? Uh, this got to be pretty high, right? This thing's pretty cool. I think in terms of power, this might be greater than the noise zeal. Oh, yeah. Well, it's also got, like, 50 years in the noise zeal, but... Um, I'm, th- I'm going to put this right up there with the Neo Zeong from Unicorn. You know, scale-wise, it's just as massive, if not more massive. Yeah. And it also has, like, a similar approach with the giant arms. 
those talons uh, look pretty impressive. We'll put it in its own category. It's a final boss level mobile armor. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. So Kincaid tries to approach the Divinidads, but it's stopped by none other than Zabine. He's back. They clash with their Zanbers, Isaac. Came out of nowhere. Here you get the sense that they're really going to have it out one last time. Before they do that, we go back and Tobia battles Karis, who starts comparing new types to the evolution of animals, saying that you know the new species always becomes an enemy of the old species. And Tobia counters with his, you know, we're all humans. Karis goes pretty extreme here. He says, no, we are Jovians. We are aliens. By spreading into space, mankind has created their own enemies. Were you expecting Karis to take such an extreme stance? No, I had a feeling he would show up again and say something specifically to Tobia. But what he said, like, makes total sense if you look at the UC and maybe even all of Gundam, right? No aliens. It's just always a group of humans in a different area fighting another group of humans. You know, we're, we're our enemies. You know, we're the aliens. We, we move away. We create our own new society, a new world, and then we clash again. And this is quite the battle. Tobia cuts pretty close to death fighting <laughs> this monster mollusk. He kind of just shrugs off the Kavarzas. He cuts through all them. But Karis launches this wire. It's got these... They're like wired bits. Like pointy things? I, I don't know. It's <laughs> Jupiter Empire loves wires, Isaac. Whips and wires and... Stringy attack. <laughs> but eventually, Tobia, he evades the wires and he cuts into the Nautilus. And then something unexpected happens, Isaac. One of the Kovarza pilots who, you know, is disabled, but he still has a working arm. He tries to shoot Toby in the back, but Karis blows him away before he can do it. His own man saying, you know, you just lost, so you can't stand in the way of, of the victor, who at this point is Tobia because he had already cut up the Nautilus. Proving once again that Karis is just a weird dude. I mean, it's very Jupiter thinking, though, right? Like, you know, the superior guy won. Don't shoot him in the back. He beat me fair and square. Yep. He's superior to me. I should die. <laughs> <laughs> Don't interrupt my death at the hands of a superior enemy. If I will, what, what, what did he say to Dogati earlier? If the, the loser doesn't come back, then they weren't good enough or something like that, right? That's exactly right. He's even congratulating Tobia at this point. Like, his ship is, like, blowing up, basically, and he's still like, you did a good job, Tobia, my boy. And again, if we ever get an anime, we were told that they were professor and student, but I think it would be helpful to have at least one scene where if a few minutes where you see why Tobia likes Kara so much. Maybe even start the series earlier, right? Like they're, they're kind of learning together or at least on a ship. We get like more of a kind of a student teacher mentor relationship going on. That way their final battle has more of a punch to it when Kara bites the bullet. Then the Divinidads start launching unstoppable feather bit attacks. Did you notice that the bits were shaped like feathers, Isaac? Yeah, I did. And it's storing thousands or hundreds. Did you not? <laughs> yeah, they just looked like tornadoes. Yeah, like this is one way to make a shield that you can't really stop, right? Because a beam shield you could maybe penetrate with a, a variable speed beam rifle. But this, it's a solid wall if you think about it. Yeah, and I got to say, at this point, I was like, well, there's no way that Lieutenant Harrison's crappy support team is going to be able to do anything. But we do get the first sign of hope, Isaac. The colonial forces make their appearance, <laughs> led by the Eos Nicks and some Zaku-looking suits, which I looked up, Isaac. I, I couldn't find anything about these things other than a few pictures. They're called the Zaku Rows. Did you like those? I thought it was very interesting to see them. I'm glad they're coming to save the day and all that, but this raises so many questions, right? Like at this point in 
you see is each side autonomous to the point or at least have a limited autonomy where they have their own military and they can choose when to send them in to help other people or not this whole time where the colonies like just having secret armies <laughs> you know yeah they were like well you know we we trusted the federation to keep us safe before and zeon still marched around and you know killed a bunch of us at this point we're going to kind of have our own small armies just to keep us safe just in case right the fact that i can see the zakharao does this mean side three kind of said you know what federation or not we'd rather not have a nuked earth so we'll send whatever military we have left here at republic of zeon um, if they were still the Republic of Zeon, you know, along with everybody else on the other sides to, to fight and save the day. Yeah, and they make a point of it to say that Crux had anticipated that they would hold their attack until everything with the Federation was over. So was he thinking that they would basically be all skeptical of Earth and be like, oh, well, if, if you take out the Federation, we wouldn't mind. And so we'll just hang back until you're done with it and then we'll come in and see what's up. I'm not sure. Maybe he was counting on being able to destroy, you know, the main Earth fleets that he was clearly handling very well. And that probably would have intimidated the sides to the point where they were like, oh, what's the point? He's clearly going to defeat Earth. He'll become the leader and we'll just take his or- our orders from him from now on. Mm. Yeah, maybe he thought, you know, as long as they don't show up, I can fight them after I dem- I'm done destroying Earth. Yeah. Because they'll, they'll just be a handful of like, you know fleets and mobile suits and colonies and i can easily handle you know whatever colony fights against us i think even flat out says that they'll they'll or maybe it was geary or somebody else that they'll destroy the colonies that fight back and i don't know i think he, he kind of bet wrong on that one isaac because it looks like these forces <laughs> they're getting in some hits on some of the divinidads you know by numbers not particularly by skill i'm sure yeah the, the divinidads look like as powerful as they are they weren't actually intended to go into combat like, this, this is something like, you know, the, the Mandroid Dogates get in when things are bad. I don't feel like we saw enough of the Divinidads. No, no. And they kind of came out of nowhere. So I, I think they're, yes, they're mobile armors. But in effect, I think they're also kind of escape pods for the Dogates. Mm-hmm. As far as the colonial fleet, do you think this was all Sherry's doing? Well, she was definitely at the, at the front of it. So I'm sure she had a big hand in it. That kind of gives her like way more power than we originally thought you know if she's able to almost she has enough diplomatic pull where she can contact all the colonies and say hey whatever you have now's the time to group it all together and we're going to attack i guess just based on her philosophy it does seem like the colonies would kind of align with her rather than the federation so maybe when she calls they answer that kind of thing yeah okay yeah but again that would be something that if you animate this you could telegraph that a little bit more Instead of just, oh, here's Sherry, right? I mean, it was, it was definitely a cool moment in the manga, don't get me wrong. But if you had more time, yeah. you could maybe throw in a scene or two that would you know, show her meeting with the representatives of the sides or something. Yeah, and let's, let's slip some lines, too, that, you know, ever since Cosmo Babylonia and after all the Xeon Wars and stuff, it, it's kind of accepted that each side will keep at least some troops under their own local yeah. government's command. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So Colonial Fleet is here. It looks like the Divinidads are, a few of them are, are taking some damage. I don't know if they're losing yet, Isaac, but they're certainly taking some damage. Yeah, some are performing better than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, which was better than what was happening with Lieutenant Harrison directing his inept Federation heavy guns. So Toby is flying around now. You know, he's just defeated Karis. He says there's at least seven of these Divinidads on the loose, but he feels that they're just there must be an eighth one somewhere because earlier Kincaid had told him don't you feel Crux's like evil energy just emanating from this thing he's looking around the battlefield and a pod 
would you call it a pod, Isaac? Yeah, a drop capsule. Yeah, those <laughs> those capsules that we've been staring at on the Jupiter's nine. One of them breaks yeah. off, and, and Toby is he's convinced that the eighth Divinidad is in that pod with the true Dogati in it. Dogati Prime. <laughs> yeah, Dogati Prime exactly. So Toby gives chase, you know, and he's gonna go get it. Uh, but before we see the resolution to that, we get to see the final drag out duel between Kincaid and Zabine. And they, they've been dueling this whole time, apparently, because now, you know, they no longer have their Zanbers. Instead, they're down to their knives, uh, their physical metal knives. They clash. Kincaid catches the X2's blade in the X1's mouth. And then, in return, he stabs the X2 cockpit with his own blade, basically, you know, killing Zabine. He tells Zabine the, the ultimate diss, right, at this point. He's, he tells Zabine what we've all been thinking this whole time. Right, the woman you want to rule your aristocracy doesn't think that aristocracy is the right way to go. Therefore, you were wrong from the beginning. Like your whole your whole thing doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I kind of thought there'd be a longer battle between them, but it was a nice change, right, to have Zabine knocked out so quickly. And again, if it was an anime, you could expand it a little bit more. I mean, this would be a great time to show off a, a beam saber fight between the X one and the X two. Those beams ambers are pretty cool. So if they ever do animate it, which I think they will someday, I think it'll be a cool scene. So at this point, Kincaid won. Uh, Zabine's dead. Kincaid looks for Tobia, who has... He, you can see that Tobia has reached that final pod now. And the final Divinidad bursts out. And again, the panel is just so menacing. The Divinidad looks terrifying. I, I'd say overall, during this, especially this last volume, uh, the author, Haskawa, has done a great job of conveying the scale of the divinidads just how massive they are that again that first shot where like all seven of them emerged that was amazing yeah. uh, and there was a little batala flying in the front to give you a sense of how big these things were and then you you mentioned when it tore the clop in half i mean that thing is massive to just tear a clop in half and then again here the way this is drawn you really see how big the divinidad is relative to the x3 and so if you're root, if you're the the reader and you're rooting for the X3, it, it is just completely dwarfed by this Divinidad thing. You know, Toby is standing in front of Crux now in the X3, and Isaac was am I imagining this or did this Dogati Prime did he look a little more decrepit than the others? He absolutely looked more decrepit. He has no hair. He looks visibly more aged and his mask is different and he has wires going into his head that are kind of different. It's, it's definitely Dogati Prime. Tobia wonders how to fight him. And Tobia is worried that this the Divinidad is so big, it must have reactors all over its body. And he's worried about what happens if all this stuff goes off at once. He thinks that it, they might have enough poison in it to you know poison the whole world. And, but he doesn't really have much time to think, Isaac, because they start falling toward Earth. I guess that was Dogati Prime's plan here, right? I mean, he felt that the Jupiter's Nine was kind of on its last legs so he figured well i'm just gonna go deliver these nukes right to earth i would assume so because he did say before he actually got into the uh the divinity that you know those fools in the jupiter empire it's it's up to me to do it or whatever yeah so I'm, i imagine his mobile armor actually gained earth while leaving the uh the fake dogates to battle it out is he'll, he'll still be able to do a lot of damage or at least he thinks he can so him and Tobio, they fall to Earth, and not only do they fall to the Earth, Isaac, they fall into the ocean. You brought up the flex about the water earlier. <laughs> Did you also catch this, that the final battle is taking place in the water? 
Yeah. It's a pretty rare place to fight in Gundam too, right? I yeah. mean, aside from Unicorn. I mean, sorry, not Unicorn, Hathaway's Flash. I can't think of there being too many final boss battles that were on an ocean. And Tobia figures out a good way to kind of tackle these Divinidads. His new plan is to cut them into smaller pieces. So he slices off one of Dogati Prime's sort of Divinidad leg sections, I'll call it. And before that finishes, we, we flash back to space. And apparently the colonial forces, Isaac, are just kicking ass. One of the Divinidads up there explodes. So clearly they're making progress. They're tipping the scale based on sheer volume, I would imagine. No matter how great you make a mobile armor... At the end of the day, I think we all know mobile armors, their history is them doing a lot of damage but being destroyed in the end. <laughs> I thought it was funny the way the panel was drawn because there's literally just a bunch of like small suits on each Divinidad just kind of chipping away. <laughs> and again, this would look great in, you know, in animated form. This whole final battle would be amazing, Isaac. Yeah, these Divinidads, they look very intimidating, you know, coming out of the, uh, the Jupiterus, but <laughs> now that we're seeing them handle like multiple mobile suits at once... I, I think they're clearly relying on having a lot of their own Jupiter mobile suits backing them up, right? Yeah, or it could be that Dogate is just not a good pilot. I mean, Tobia mentioned that oh, yeah. at some point. He said, like, did it imply yeah. that piloting is not his strong suit or something like that? Right. He was like, I still have a chance. I still can. I mean, he's powerful, but I can still. I actually have training right, and experience. Like, yeah. Dogate's been a throne forever. So I'm maybe they put like post-it notes on his like his cockpit, you know, like <laughs> this is the beam cannon. You know, this moves your arms. Don't forget, watch your, your temperature gauge. <laughs> and so all the Divinidads ap- apparently are down, except the last one on Earth that's fighting Toby in the water. And here Dogate gives us his final rant, Isaac. And I mean what what does he tell us? This is his big reveal. He tells us that Essentially, he's attacking Earth because he's bitter. He doesn't even care about the Jupiter Empire, really. This has just been to make Earth a desolate place because they rejected him, and he had to grow up with all this nice stuff, and he just wants it to become a dead world. He seems very proud of the fact that he turned Jupiter from a world of nothing, I think he calls it, to a world where humans could live in a matter of 70 years. And he says, when he asked the Federation water and food that they gave them nothing and that actually sounds right up the federation's alley right (laughs) right i mean knowing the federation it might not have been so much willful as it was you know they lost the request or you know they were having they were they were having uh 20 committee meetings on you know what type of water to send what type of food and you know all that all that federation slow stuff yeah he, he also said um, they, they, like, matched him with an Earth woman hoping to, like, placate him. And that's, how, that's where Bernadette came from. But every time he would look at Bernadette's mother, he, like, felt disgust because she was so cheery and optimistic. And you could only be that way if you grew up on Earth where, you know, everything's handed to you and not Jupiter where you have to fight for, like, every breath. Despite what Bernadette was thinking and her optimism, this line about him, you know, how much he viewed the mother, the mother of his daughter, how poorly he viewed her. That really closes the book on Dogati having no redeeming qualities. Say what you build about a lot of the villains that we've seen in Gundam, and almost all of them have some redeeming qualities, but Dogati is just a zero. <laughs> he admitted that the woman, Bernadette's mother, was a was a kind woman. Yeah. And he said that it felt like he couldn't direct his uh, anger at her. But clearly he doesn't like her because of the projection, that it, the way that it makes him feel. He feels the world has rejected him, so he'll just destroy it all. 
Is there any way that Bernadette was right, or was she just completely wrong? I think she was completely wrong. I yeah. comment below if you think Bernadette was right, but I, I'd love to hear why. I she was wrong on all counts. Dogati has no redeeming qualities. I was kind of hoping for maybe you know we we hear a line from him like you know oh Bernadette she has you know the 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 last good in me or something or you know she she could have been what what Jupiter will be like you know in the future she's a good person and she'll be able to be the new type of human we want in a final you know an earth sphere under jupiter control something like that but no that never even comes up it's just destroy and kill earth if bernadette was to have been right what i was expecting was them to reveal that you know the the other nine fake cruxes had sort of overwhelmed the the original crux and he was he was still a good guy or something like that but they clearly uh. didn't do that right i mean if this is really dogati prime then like you said, he, he's not a nice yeah. guy. The only other way I could see her being considered correct was that, you know how they said that like he put his mind into the bio units? Like maybe some part of his mind wanted Bernadette to live, but it's that part of his mind acting on its own and not necessarily as a whole with the other cruxes or something like that. I mean, that'd be the only way I could fathom what she said being correct. It also makes me wonder if the author considered multiple endings and maybe the one we got doesn't really use that scene earlier to the greatest effect. Because you're right. I mean, otherwise she's just wrong. So that scene's kind of weird. Yeah, she's like wrong on like both counts, you know? Right. I don't know. Maybe, but like, I like to think they could include a scene where she is gets proven right a little bit. You know, maybe even in the past where like he, he was okay to her, showed a lot of kindness to her, but like, you know, then he just went insane. Right. But this, it looks like he was insane from day zero. <laughs> yeah. But meanwhile, they're still in the ocean here. And here it is, Isaac. Dogati tries to fire the nukes in the Divinidad's chest. Probably at least, I don't know, at least 10 of them. But Tobia extends the Mermasa blaster and cuts off all the warheads in one nice fell swoop, like fell swipe across. But then the Divinidad's head opens up into a mega particle cannon. There's your mega particle cannon that you wanted, Isaac, on the Mother Vanguard. It's in the Divinidad's head. <laughs> of course it would be in like you know the most powerful marble armor but tobia is a pretty quick thinker here he sticks his hands in to the divinidad's head where it's about to fire the medical particle cannon and he activates the eye field on both hands at full power and as the medical particle cannon collides with the eye field it kind of just overloads tobia ejects in the crossfighter and the divinidad explodes kind of like tobia's version of erupting burning finger right yeah it was <laughs> This is maybe the first case of an eye field being used as a weapon. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Kincaid flies down and grabs Toby's crossfighter, which is you know exited the water. But the Divinidad's not done, Isaac. It emerges out of the water. The head part is kind of blown off, and you can see where Dogati Prime is sitting in the little cockpit pod laughing. And is he having like a dying hallucination here? Yes, because the Divinidad's on fire, and from where he's sitting, he can see, like, everything on fire. Like, he, he's looking through flames, looking at, you know, the, the, the crossbone Gundam and everything else, the ocean. And he's telling himself, oh, look, the world's in flames. I did it. <laughs> yeah. Kincaid ends his dream, though. He launches the whip, and he basically just impales Dogati, killing him, and finally sinking the Divinidad. And, wow, Isaac, that was quite the ride. The forces of evil have been defeated, Brian. Yeah. We get a small epilogue here. Flash over to, I don't know, some time later, right? They're on Earth. Kincaid gives the X-1 to Tobia. 
Him and Bear are basically going to retire. Bear takes off Kincaid's mask. He has a scar now, which looks kind of neat. Tobia plans to remain a space pirate since he is officially dead, which I didn't really understand. Couldn't he just go to the Federation and be like, hey, I'm not actually dead? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? I don't know. Maybe he wants to leave that behind him. (laughs) Seabook and Cecily take back their their old names, Seabook and Cecily, and they plan to just uh, be together now, Isaac, on Earth. They're essentially retired at the ripe old age of, I think, 28 or 29. <laughs> and uh, the closing words, they're very fairy tale like The man and woman regained their names and disappeared within the green earth. There are no records of the young boy and girl remaining, but the name Crossbone Gundam is spoken as a legend amongst the people. Yeah, you know what I was happy to see? I was happy to see Burns was like kind of there with the group at the end, you know? Mm, what was he? I bet he's going to be in the sequel then, you know? Yeah, he was in the background looking kind of happy. Smiling, and they probably brought him into the group, you know? <laughs> so there you have it, listeners. That's the uh, that's the finale. I mean, I don't use the word epic very often, Isaac, but the last fight here with the Divinidods and, and Karis and Sabine, that was pretty epic. I don't think I've seen a final battle that became a final boss fight really flow so well and move from like space to Earth like this before. It was just so epic and awesome. I thought this flowed much better than, say, the ending of Unicorn. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know. It was just a roller coaster all the way to the end. And when we finally did get the ending, it wasn't a really stretched out epilogue. It was just everybody wins. Everybody lived happily ever after again. The Earth was saved. Roll credits. Yeah, they didn't spend too long on it. They didn't overstay its welcome. If anything, you wanted more at certain times. Overall, I thought it really delivered. But are there any things about the series, Isaac, that you didn't enjoy or you thought could be better? I guess what it ultimately comes down to is just having a bit more of the, the, the questions I had explained. Where do the colonies get their troops from? A little bit more backstory maybe with Karis and Tobia. Overall, though, this was such a great series. There's almost no flaws to it, I think. It was really enjoyable. Yeah, I think a lot of the the things I didn't like are just additions I would like to the story, not necessarily flaws. Yeah. So I agree, you know, there should be more burns, more backstory with Toby and Karis. One thing that I thought, this is kind of a flaw in, in my mind, some people may not think this way, but I thought they really missed an opportunity to get Barra back in a mobile suit in the last battle. After the Mother Vanguard goes down, she really doesn't do much the rest of the story. For being such like a major player, like she is the leader of the Crossbone Vanguard, I think that's kind of a waste. She should have been given another Crossbone unit, or at least a Flint. You got me there. Yeah, absolutely. You know what would have been cool if like I don't know, Zabine's death happened, but the uh, his his Crossbone Gundam was still intact for her to use and go back to Earth. That way, we have one of the original Crossbone Gundams going back for the final battle. Oh yeah, that could be too. Yeah, yeah, because like Zavine's death was weird, right? He took a hit to the cockpit, but the whole mobile suit wasn't destroyed outright. I think, right? Yeah, you're right. He just took a knife into the into the cockpit. I didn't actually look that up. I wonder if they ever used the X2 for anything else. Unless did it blow up? I don't remember. I'll have to go back. And I don't that. remember it blowing up. I remember it kind of floating around there. Oh, well, maybe it actually did blow up. Now that I think about it, actually, yeah, I do remember the last shot we see of it is some kind of explosion before mm, a okay. seaboat gets out of there. Got it. So, okay. So that wouldn't have been able to happen. But I mean, you know, they, they gave Toby the X3. They could have had an X4 running around that was, you know, a, a red one or something that she could pilot. 
Yeah, I think it's something nice to have, but at the same time, they they really kind of hammered in that she's clearly switched to being the organizational leader. Yeah, that's fair. But I mean, she I don't know. I just felt like she was really sidelined in volumes five and six. She was just kind of crying most of the time. I thought it was a step back for her character. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. Maybe her growth has been so much about being a leader and making the commitments that she already showed that she can be great in a mobile suit. But yeah, I mean... Would you want to see a new mobile suit or, you know, you said you'd be okay with a flint. If you had the option, a flint or a new one, would you want a new one? If I had my choice, I would say give her like a, give her the X4 in a different color, but I would be totally fine with a flint. Anything that would make her more of a participant in the last battle than, than an onlooker. Okay. Yeah. Or she could even take command of the Eos Nyx and be more involved. Okay, Sherry picks her up and says, you know, for, if they have their their makeup, right? Like, forgive me, right. you know, I clearly made a mistake. Please take my ship. We, we, you know, we kind of lied. We actually do have a ton of weapons. Tell right. us what to do. <laughs> yeah, and maybe she offers her the, the captain's chair, you know, and she sits in. Yeah. Like, that could be a good moment. I'm not saying she has to be a mobile suit pilot, but I just feel like she didn't really participate much for being a main character in the last piece so we know sherry doesn't sit in the captain's chair because if you <laughs> remember she had like that garden she has like a desk near a garden that's true you yeah. know <laughs> she has her t- she has her tea time there and then you know the captain probably asked her what to do and then she'll just <laughs> she'll just tell him yeah that's fair sherry's that's fair. so cool she might be one of the most interesting characters in the series because she wields so much power and it's like so low-key and hidden away you know yeah, she would be a good candidate to have like a, a side story on the DVD that's very, you know, that, that goes into her like political dealings, which is maybe not something that makes it into like the main OVA. Yeah, I'd like to see what she was working on. Because if you remember, her side of the family, they're still all about making an aristocracy. They just seem to be doing it peacefully or slowly to the point where the Federation doesn't see them as a threat. So yeah, she's got her own game going on. Definitely. In terms of making this an anime one day isaac because i think that's what everyone that seems to be where the fandom wants to go i guess how long do you envision this and out of all of the uc series which one do you think has the animation that would work the most for this series oh boy okay i'm gonna kind of start backwards animation wise Initially, I was kind of against the style, right? Because I thought it was a little too chibi. Yep. And I was like, oh, you know, oh, why isn't this looking like Hathaway? Oh, why isn't this looking like Unicorn? Uh, uh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that said now, I really do appreciate the style. So I'd say it would almost have to be closer to Gundam AGE, Gundam Age. Okay, yeah. Or maybe like Build Fighters, you know, because yeah. that, that was, that was kind of rounded to an extent. If they say we're not doing that, we clearly have established UC as being, you know, very realistic and kind of serious in tone. So we're going to have to rehire the Hathaway team. Then I'd say, sure, go for it. As far as length, I would appreciate each volume be treated as a two-hour feature. Okay. Yeah, that could work. That means things might have to be stretched out and fleshed out more. So be it. I think that gives us plenty of room to, to get it done right. I'm not sure if these six volumes could be turned into 50 episodes. That might be too long. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a little long. We have to remember, to an extent, this is a side story. It's a great side story, but it's, you know, it's it's very much a post-F91 six-episode sequel. So let's treat it the same way. How about you, Brian? What are your thoughts on animation style if and when this comes to uh to production 
and also length you would like it either in a movie format or episodes i would be totally fine if they just adapted it in the style that it is it's a very 90s style that is very nostalgic for like the 80s style a lot of the characters the way their hair looks it reminds me of some like 80s anime and i'm totally okay with that i don't think they'll do that because i think that would be too brave of a move i mean you know gundam is a is a very corporate property right like you you know, they, they have to make the decision they think will make them the most money. So I don't think they'll we probably... We have to sell models. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they will animate it the way that it looks. I mean, even if you look at the Master Grade model kits, they're, they're all, they don't look like the suits in the manga. They've all been redesigned by Hajime Kotoki to make them look more like the normal Gundam shapes. So if you go look at the Master Grades, it just gives a different silhouette, a different shape. I don't want to call it blander, but it's definitely a little more boring than what they look like in the manga. And if you if you flip back and forth between them, you'd be like, oh, like all the proportions of the shoulders, the proportions of the skirt armor, the chest, everything is just a little bit different to where it looks safer. I kind of like the way it looks in the manga. I think you should just animate it like that. But I think if I had to pick another show, I would agree that Age or Build Fighters is probably what they would go with to get a, a happy middle ground. If I had to pick one out of UC, though... Some of the 8th MS team character designs are a little softer. I think you could make it work in the 8th MS team style. That'd be interesting. Yeah. that would, I mean, their characters are definitely kind of softer designed, but the suits themselves are very, very tech, right? Very hard military. Yeah, but they're not quite as tech as like 083 is or Hathaway's Flash is, I don't think. Yeah, that's true. Good point. Yeah. Um, and then length, if this was a shonen manga, kind of like, you know, Dragon Ball, One Piece, that kind of thing, usually you get like two chapters per one episode. The, some of these chapters felt a little longer than those those style chapters. You know, I think it was 27 chapters total. So yeah, it's definitely not enough, I don't think, for a 50 episode show. A 26 episode show could work, but yeah, I think I would go your route and try to do either a six episode, like two hour plus feature for each one or like a 13 episode OVA series that was each one is like 45 minutes. Either way would be good. I think, <laughs> Yeah, you know, there are some sequels as well, Isaac, that are, I think there's one called steel seven and one that's a skull heart. And then there's, there's even more after those, but I would say these three, uh, crossbone steel seven and then skull heart. Those are kind of like the core. And then the other ones are to take place a little bit later. So they could also consider adapting those at the same time and fold it and make it like a bigger show. Like that could give you more length if you wanted to get up to 26 or 50 episodes. I have no idea what happens in those. We'll read those in the next month or so, but they're a little shorter. I don't think they're quite as long as, as the original, but so yeah, depends how far they want to go, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, as long as the story gets done right, I think we'll be happy with anything. So Isaac, how many horrors would you give this? I'm sure there's some fans like me who, if it isn't crisp, if it doesn't look more advanced in terms of animation style and drawing style, then I just kind of dismiss it, right? It's just another chibi, boring story. You know, something, some old story that happened a long time ago. And, <laughs> you know, the Japanese animation team, they did their best, but it's, you know, it's, it's kind of wacky. And it's going to be boring. You know, the anime series and all that, that's real Gundam. This kind of, you know, slapped me in the face and corrected me. No. Manga series can be just as engaging as an anime series, a, an OVA, a movie. Um, and even though the animation style might be softer, that doesn't necessarily mean the story's less than, you know, a, a recent series that came out that's really crisp and, uh, you know, very realistic. 
this was a great series, probably my favorite manga series that I've maybe ever read. So for that reason, I will very much recommend it to anyone that hasn't read it. Um, if you're a Gundam fan, anime fan, manga fan, you will have a very good time, I think, reading this series. For that reason, Brian, I will give this six out of five Haros. Wow, that is a stellar rating, sir. Yes, I mean, uh, I've never used one before, but in this case, it is warranted. <laughs> I think I couldn't have said it better. So, yeah, <laughs> took the words right <laughs> out of my mouth, Isaac. So uh, I think this, this series is great. It's a good Gundam story. It's also just a good story in general. So like Isaac said, if you just like anime, you like manga, I think you would enjoy reading it. You know, you may not pick up all the different references if you've never read Gundam before, but it's certainly enjoyable. It's a very easy story to get into. It doesn't require having loads and loads of knowledge about Gundam, which I think might turn off some people sometimes, right? Especially with the right. Universal Century. Characters were all likable. The characters that were the bad guys were, they were evil, but they were good to read about, right? You you know, Karis was a great character. Crux was a, a mysterious character that kept you into the story. <laughs> there were cool side characters like Uman and, and Lieutenant Harrison and Sherry. There's still so many like interesting things. I'm probably going to think about this series for a while. You know, there's so much to absorb. Like, I'm still trying to grasp, like, the Jupiter Empire. To an extent, they were kind of villains in their own category. Say what you will about the the bad guys we fought before, even the Zanskar Empire. Actually, no, they're actually pretty close. But say what you will about Zeon, but they very much have, like, a credo, right? Like, there's there's an ethos to their ideology, you know? It's kind of gung-ho to be, like, a fan about it in a way. Right. Jupiter, it's completely death and destruction based <laughs> like i don't even know what to compare it to in our real world you know xeon's very totalitarian and you know yeah, the space fascist but man jupiter is just it, it's it's very ink sock right it's <laughs> yeah there it's, you go. It, it, it's gundam's ink sock you know yeah. so uh, yeah there there's such interesting villains i'd be very curious to see more of the jupiter empire because i support not to this isn't a spoiler alert at all but there's a lot of jupiter colonies left so <laughs> right those people are still there right they didn't go anywhere i'm guessing they're gonna hear word that things didn't go great on earth <laughs> and there's clearly a power vacuum since you know dogati and all their leadership isn't coming back right so i'd like to imagine we have not heard the last of the jupiter empire brian Probably not. Probably not. I believe I read one of the descriptions from either Steel 7 or, or Skullheart. I can't remember. And I know one of them involves a colony laser, so I'm pretty sure you'll be... <laughs> <laughs> I know you were asking about super weapons earlier, so I'm sure you'll tune in for that one. Yeah, here we go. A colony <laughs> You know what? To the Jupiter Empire's credit, like they're very clever, right? Because they were observing the Mars Zeon. Right. And they yeah. were like, you know, if you build a super weapon, that's not how you go about it. It's... <laughs> It's going to take too long to get to Earth, and each year you only have like a handful of opportunities to actually shoot Earth. So, so if we build a, a beam weapon, it, we know it's going to get to Earth at the speed of light. We're going to do it right. <laughs> God damn it. Hey, Brian, any favorite moments? I, I know it was a long series to read through, and some time has passed, but do you have any kind of crowning moments of awesome, like just thinking back, or even, even in this segment? Uh, yeah, I mean, crowning moments of awesome, I think definitely when the Divinidads rose up from the Jupiter's Nine. Hell yeah. And the the moment that you realize that there's seven of them, not one, because that's never been done before in a Gundam nope. series. I thought when Kincaid finally stabbed Zabine at the end, that was good. That was like your, you know, your comeuppance, right, for Zabine. He finally got 
that was coming to him. While we're on Zabine, I just kind of have to say again that maybe my biggest critique is by bringing back Zabine and changing him so much, he doesn't feel like Zabine. Like even till yeah. the very end, this was not Zabine. I almost wish it was Dorel. That would made a ton of sense, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Cecily's adopted brother that was, for all, for all we could see, very gung ho about the aristocracy. Yeah. But I guess it's kind of implied that he didn't make it through the Civil War. So I did some digging on this. Oh, I, I think this was on the Me- the the Mecca Talk forums. It could be somewhere else. I don't remember. There was a good thread on there. A lot of people had this question, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, like what the heck happened to Darrell? <laughs> Where where's Darrell? <laughs> I forget who it was. I don't have it in front of me. This was I didn't think I'd bring this up on the podcast, but apparently the the conclusion is that the author did ask Tomino about Darrell, and Tomino just told him to forget about Darrell. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> there you go i do think if you animate this you probably have to answer the question where did Darrell go right yeah i mean or or you don't necessarily answer it in this series but he has to come back in a series you know yeah somewhere i was about to say by default wouldn't he be with sherry like when they'd be working together but then again sherry's very peaceful it seems i i don't think she and Darrell would get along with the their methods they would seem to be opposing family members, but any any way you could just add some clarity about what happened to Darrell, I think you'd have to do that if you were going to animate this. What's your headcanon, Brian? Did he die in the Civil War at Cosmo Babylonia, or did he escape once it was looking like the the aristocracy faction was going to lose, and he decided to lick his wounds until he can return another day? My headcanon is that Kincaid killed him oh, shit. during the Civil War. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> yeah or Zabine what I think one of them took him out it's possible we have no confirmation though so it's 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 he may return yeah I mean I think you just you got to do something with him he's a he's a piece on the board that you have to address I'd, I'd really like to see Sherry again god she's so interesting Burns he'd be good to return are we gonna see you know Geary and Raspberry lived so are they gonna come back eh. look man Raspberry you know, sex sells, man. There's you gotta <laughs> you gotta get those bounces in. Okay, we can buy Burns joining Crossbone when they come back. Can you see Geary and Raspberry or Raspberry joining Crossbone Vanguard? Maybe Raspberry. <laughs> I could see Geary joining just from the like we helped this guy get over his mental issues. Raspberry, I don't see joining. We'll write them off. You want them written off. They won't return. Burns can return, but not them. Here's the thing. I, I could see them allowing Geary to join because they feel bad for him and, and Raspberry, maybe. But if, if you look at what just happened with Zabine, I, from a logical perspective, I would say, no, you can't join because the other guy, I let him join and he mutinied. How do I know you're not going to do the same thing? That'd be a terrible idea. In their defense, they're Jupiter Empire veterans. So I'm sure whoever they identify as their leader, they'll follow their words to like to death. <laughs> Yeah, could be, could be. Zabine was thinking on his own too much, you know. <laughs> the other last crowning moment of awesome. I actually thought the ending with Tobia shoving his hand into the mega particle cannon and activating the uh-huh. eye field. I thought that was great. That was totally a Tobia thing to do. He's very resourceful, just like Kincaid, which makes sense because he learned to pilot from Kincaid. The battle ended with a un- something that was unique to the X3. Yeah. So I thought that was a great way to end it. It fit the character doing the action, which is, that's something that, that makes a great ending, right? Like, right. you think of great endings, you think of, like, recent examples, like, in, in Avengers Endgame, 
Tony making the, the the snap and saying I am Iron Man. That's something that only Tony would do. Well, this is something only that Toby would do. You know, only he had the eye field, and it fits his very direct style of combat. Like in the beginning, he didn't even know how to use the Muramasa blaster, so, but so he was just banging on those Dionas like with 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 it like a club, because uh, that's that's just that's just what he does. He just goes in and does it. He's very headstrong. So I thought it really worked out. Yeah. I also feel like we've never seen an attack work like that where the eye field bends the beam back into the attacker and destroys him. And also going off what Tobia said about, well, Dogay's not really a trained pilot. If there was a trained pilot in the Divinidad, would he have known that that mobile suit has eye fields? I should be pretty careful about how I use my beam weapons. No way. I don't think so. Okay. Not unless he had like a scouting report, you know. But even then, I mean, okay. we, what yeah. are you going to do, not use your mega particle cannon? I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think he got him. So with that in mind, Isaac, I'm going to give it nine and a half out of ten Haros. I thought it was fantastic for all the reasons we listed. And I think the listeners should go out and read it if you haven't. They will have a great time. They will. They will. So let us know in the comments your thoughts on Crossbone Gundam. Do you want to see it animated? Who are your favorite characters? Which characters didn't get enough page time? Which ones do you want to see more of in the anime, if it ever occurs? Do you think it'll get an anime? Are you shocked, listeners, that Isaac gave it a 6 out of 5? You better be. This is damn good. <laughs> I had a great time reading it. Oh my god. It was a lot of fun. Please read it. I don't make this stuff up. Brian knows. I don't read a, lot t- a ton of manga. This was really good. Who doesn't? It's got to be pretty good to hold Isaac's attention. Yeah. Most of the time, I'm like, what? What happened? Like, oh god. Okay. <laughs> they haven't killed this guy yet? Come on. i encourage you all to read it it's a great run looking forward to the animated version looking forward to the models put me in the crossbone camp and i think you guys would join me once you finish reading this manga series all right so make sure to like comment subscribe isaac take us away all right listeners before you go to sleep tonight stand next to your bed get on your knees Put your hands together, look into your aquarium and hail president crux dogady of the jupiter empire Good night, everybody.